Well, good morning. Uh, so my name is Alex Tuckness. I'm uh, one of the elders at Cornerstone Church in Ames, and so it's really a, a pleasure to be here again and to just uh, greet you all and try to encourage you all today. I was talking with Matt a little bit before service and just really encouraged if somebody was telling me that God is doing among you and through you and uh, just, yeah, uh, earnestly desire that God would just continue the work he is uh, doing here at Boone through, uh, through Stonebridge Church. Uh, so we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 today, uh, and we get to start talking about things like the end of the world, right? Um, so I don't know if you've been following this uh, in the news. A lot of my colleagues certainly have been. Uh, a lot of people are really freaked out right now about artificial intelligence, right? Now, there's like these new bots, and people are getting into conversations with them, and the conversations are getting creepy enough. People are thinking like, are those science fiction movies I watched as a kid going to actually happen, right? And the robots take over and rule the world and wipe us all out and things like that, you know? But in addition to that sort of like fear of the end of the world, right? You know, we've got a war going on, you know, in Ukraine and tensions with Russia and China are higher. And so, you know, what about nuclear war, right? That's been one of the other kinds of scenarios people have worried about a lot or environmental devastation. There's all these different kinds of things that in our culture people are worried about. Um, and I think we worry about them because we have this idea that if we know what's going to happen that's bad in the future, really bad, if we know what it's going to look like and how it's going to happen, then when we would somehow know what we could do now to be on guard against it, to stop it, right? You know, if, if, if the robots are what's going to get us, we can figure out how to reprogram the robots so they don't, right? So it's a desire for a kind of control and a desire to know how to prepare. Well, you know, as Christians, one of the things that is uh, distinctive about our view of the world is we believe there is going to be a day when life is no longer like it is right now. There's going to come a point in time when Jesus returns and, and reality is fundamentally different than it's been previously. But there's also Christian teaching that indicates that before Jesus comes back, things are going to be bad, not good. Uh, and there's, there's some markers about what this is going to be like. And one of the things that is sometimes talked about is this period before Jesus comes back that's going to be marked by apostasy and the Antichrist, right? So apostasy is people like rejecting the faith and turning away from the true faith. Uh, the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness is this kind of mysterious figure that's kind of mentioned and alluded to, referred to in different ways in the Bible, uh, who's somehow going to be a powerful figure during that period right before Jesus comes back and who's going to make life difficult for Christians. Well, the passage we're going to be looking at today is going to address that, and I think it's going to try to help us have some tools to know how to appropriately be on guard and be prepared in case this happens in our lifetime. Uh, but interestingly, its way of doing it is not so much like to give us like a drawing, like here's what he looks like, right? So you'll see him, right? Um, and by the way, Christians have often tried this approach and it's rarely worked well. Uh, I remember when I was a, a teenager, uh, there was a lot of people who were convinced that Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist uh, because he had this like birthmark thing on his forehead, so like that must be the mark of the beast, right? Well, no, it turned out not so much. So now we can keep coming up with our theories. Maybe it's Putin. Maybe it's, you know, somebody at the United Nations. People come with all these different theories. But I think the Bible's way of helping us to prepare is not so much to give us like a sketch drawing of what the person's going to be like, although we will see some character qualities of this person. 
I think what the Bible is going to actually do is tell us how to prepare our hearts so that our hearts are, are firm and not easily led astray. So let's uh, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, and we're going to uh, start looking at verses 1 through 8. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this? And you know what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining him will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming." So the first main thing we're going to see uh, from the first uh, eight verses here is that there is a time of trial that is coming, but God is in control and God will be victorious, right? We don't have to be afraid because God is in control. And first of all, uh, we see uh, that this topic is actually an important one to Paul, not just an obscure one, right? Because what prompts this is there's some false prophets, false teachers who are going around and telling people uh, who are Christians, hey, I know you've been waiting eagerly for Jesus to come back. Sorry to tell you, he already came. He didn't do a thing for you, right? And this was like really upsetting a lot of people because the second coming of Jesus is a fundamental part of what we as Christians believe. This is our hope for what the redemption of the world is going to be like. So we are eagerly waiting for the day when Jesus returns. And so for false teachers to go around saying, hey, it already happened and the world's pretty much like it was before would have been very upsetting to people, right? And so he's wanting to say, no, 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 like those people were not authorized by us. Those were false teachers, false prophets. You don't have to pay attention to what they say. But then he secondly says, uh, and by the way, like you should have known this wasn't for real, like, you should have known this was false teaching, because remember when I was with you, I told you a bunch of stuff, and if you remembered what I had told you before, you would have known this couldn't have happened, because what he had told them before is that God has a timeline, right, and things are going to happen on God's timeline. This is part of how we see that God is in control, right, because God has planned out what the sequence of events is going to be like. So what's the sequence? Well, what we learn from the passage, right, is that somehow the power of lawlessness is already at work, right? And so we're going to see, I think lawlessness has to do with, with, with power and authority that rejects God's rule and authority and instead tries to do its own thing in opposition to God's ways, right? So this is rebellion against the authority of God. It's kind of moral lawlessness, if we can put it that way. Um, and he says in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, we all know that this 
power that is working against God's kingdom is already in the world right now. It's there all the time. It was there in Paul's day. It's there in all day. It's already at work. But right now, it is being restrained, right? So this is talked about uh, in verse 6. He says, you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed later, right? So the idea is the power of lawlessness is at work, but there's something restraining it right now that keeps things from getting too bad. But at a certain point, the restraint gets pulled off, and then lawlessness gets worse, right? It becomes more powerful. Things become more difficult, that's when the man of lawlessness is going to appear, right? Is after the restraint is taken away. But then after the man of lawlessness appears, the third step is going to be Jesus returning and Jesus defeating the powers of evil, right? And, and he does so decisively. Did you catch that in, in verse 8? The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. Right, so the, the big picture here is to know that even though a time of persecution and trial will come, that doesn't mean God is not in control. Right? This is actually part of God's plan, and God will eventually defeat his enemies through Jesus Christ. Right? And so that's our confidence and helps us uh, to not be afraid. So now I want to say a little bit about these two figures that are referred to here. So we've got this man of lawlessness on the one hand and the restrainer, uh, of the man of lawlessness on the other. Um, so as I was saying before, I think the man of lawlessness is someone who amasses great power but is rejecting God's law and God's authority, right? Lawless means he does whatever he wants to do, right? He doesn't, there's, there's no laws that can uh, constrain him or keep him from doing what he wants to do. And not only that, he uses his power to act as if he were God, right? The, the amount of pride and arrogance here is actually uh, pretty astounding, right? In verse four, it says, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. So you wanna talk about somebody on an ego trip, right? This is someone who basically is saying, all worship me, right? And, and wanting to kind of claim all authority, all honor, right, for himself. If I were going to give like an example, um, we're going to be talking about the book of Daniel a little bit here. Uh, you know, think about the example in Daniel where the king issues an edict that no one is allowed to pray to anyone but the king for a period of days, right? And this is how Daniel finds himself in the lion's den because he refuses to obey this. That would be in the spirit, right? All, all worship, all honor need to go to me, right? So part of the implication of this is people who are faithful like Daniel was and who refuse to give their worship to this uh, ruler and continue faithfully worshiping God as they have before may find themselves persecuted, right? And so that's one of the things that's going to make it difficult for God's people during this time period. Okay, so that's a little bit about the, uh, the man of lawlessness. Now let's talk about the restrainer, because this is going to both help us understand it, but also understand the man of lawlessness a little better, right? So one way of thinking about this uh, is I think it's possible that Satan himself doesn't actually know who the man of lawlessness is, 
because I don't think Satan actually knows when the restraint is going to be taken away. So it may be like Satan always has a man of lawlessness on deck so that whenever the restrainer is taken away, he's ready to go. So if things had gone differently, maybe it could have been Hitler, right? Uh, maybe it's someday in the future, right? But the idea is uh, at some point the restraint is removed. Now, who is the restrainer? Now, with all of this, I want to like give a little caveat here. These are pretty confusing passages, and we all need to have a little humility and uh, a bit of tentativeness about whether we're getting these things exactly right. There's different theories about it, but as I've been studying this, I think the most likely explanation is that the restrainer is an angel who is at work, uh, and I think it's the archangel whose name is Michael. And the reason I think that is because uh, I think there's some really close parallels between 2 Thessalonians 2 uh, and the book of Daniel, right? I've already mentioned one kind of uh, analogy in Daniel, but there's some even closer ones uh, in the end of Daniel in books in chapters 10, 11, and 12. So here's what I think had been going on. I think when Paul had been with the Thessalonians before and he had been teaching them, they had spent some time studying the book of Daniel, and he'd been like talking through all of this stuff with them uh, as he'd been explaining the book of Daniel to them. Because here's what we learn in the book of Daniel. So after the more famous parts of Daniel with all the stories about uh, fiery furnaces and lion's dens and all of that, uh, the second half of Daniel has a lot of prophecies that Daniel is given predicting what's going to happen to future kingdoms, like in Greece and Persia and Babylon and Rome and things like that, right? So there's these visions of the future uh, that Daniel is given. And in Daniel chapter 10, there's this really unusual passage where Daniel had been praying and this angel shows up like three weeks later, and the angel's like, hey, I am really sorry I'm three weeks late. Uh, I had really intended to be here sooner, uh, but some demonic forces like captured me and were holding me for a while, and I had to wait until Michael the archangel came and sprung me out so I could get here to give you the message. And we're like, what on earth? Right? This is not how we normally think, right? And as, as the, this angel keeps talking, we start getting this picture right, of like angelic forces that are linked to the different empires and the rise and fall of empires that we see going on on earth somehow has some connections to things that are going on and being battled out in the spiritual realms, right? But there's this idea that there's this spiritual conflict going on that has implications for what happens here on earth and that this archangel named Michael is a particularly powerful force working for the good and protection of God's people. So then, in chapter 11 of Daniel, this messenger angel starts giving Daniel the message. And it's another prophecy telling him what's going to happen in the future. And as it's going along, he starts describing the period of history after Alexander the Great has died and the Greek Empire like splits into four parts. So one of the parts of uh, the Greek Empire is ruled by this guy whose name is Antiochus IV. Uh, and Antiochus IV is a really bad guy. And I think Antiochus IV is like a template of the character of what the man of lawlessness is like, right? So in other words, like Antiochus IV is kind of like a sneak preview on a small scale of what the man of lawlessness is going to be on a larger scale. And I think that because there's these interesting... Um, connections between the prophecy about Antiochus IV in Daniel chapter 11 and our passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. So for example, in chapter 11, a prophecy about Antiochus, 
Um, it says in uh, verse 31, his forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Right? So this is referring to an actual event in Israel's history, right? And this is the period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? That 400-year period. During that period, this guy named Antiochus IV conquers Jerusalem, and he sends his troops into God's temple and he orders them to perform pagan sacrifices in God's temple to desecrate it, right? So, so if you are wanting someone who is wanting to like defy the living God in any, every way possible, this is it, right? So he's basically trying to shut down the worship of God by desecrating the temple and get people to worship these pagan sacrifices, right? And by exerting his control over the temple, he's basically trying to put himself in the position of God because God is supposed to be the one ruling in the temple. But then it gets even a closer parallel with our passage. If we uh, skip down a few verses uh, and look at verse 36, it says, then the king will do whatever he wants. Lawlessness, right? He'll do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of his wrath is completed, because what has been decreed will be accomplished. In other words, he's going to have a period of time where he gets to do his thing, but when his period of time is completed, he's going to be defeated. He will not show regard um, for the gods of his fathers, the gods desired by women, or any other god, because he will magnify himself above all. That is a picture of the man of lawlessness, right? He magnifies himself above all. He won't allow other things to be worshipped. And so there's this picture, right, of uh, this sort of a person. And then in the next chapter, the last chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, here's how it begins. It says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands over your people will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Right? So there's this picture of like Michael the angel now re-engaging um, and, and working with God for the full defeat of these enemies uh, and ultimately uh, the resurrection uh, that we have to look forward to, right, at the end when Jesus comes back. So with that context, I think we can now look back at uh, our passage and have a little bit more of an understanding of what it is that's going on, right? So there are spiritual forces of evil at work in the universe, but God has not left us defenseless because for thousands of years now, God has been using his angelic forces to restrain evil so that things don't get as bad as they could be. 
And at some point, when that restraint is taken away and things do get worse, we have the courage to know that when it happens, it is happening according to God's timeline, and that God himself will be victorious. So a a couple applications from this first part of the, the passage. One is, I think this should give us a serious dose of humility. I think we as human beings are often proud and arrogant, and we really overstate how powerful and smart we are, right? We've got computers, and we've got satellites, and we've got nuclear weapons, and all of these things seem pretty powerful. I don't think angels are scared of us, right? I don't don't think they're like, wow, those human beings, they're so smart and so clever, right? There are other beings in the universe smarter than us, more powerful than us, right? And it should cause us in humility to depend on Jesus even more because he is the one who is more powerful than anything, right? And it, it, should, it should encourage us not to put our trust in human abilities to overcome things uh, that are frightening to us. But secondly, right, it reminds us that Jesus will be victorious, right? The key verse, right, in verse eight, the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming, right? So we as Christians hold on to this hope that because Jesus is coming back, the people of God will ultimately find themselves victorious. Okay, so if that's the main idea, the other main idea from this passage uh, that we're going to see in verses 9 through 12 is how we guard our hearts, right? And this is how we be prepared for that day. So let me read uh, the second part of our passage. It says, the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. So one of the themes we see here is that there is a lot of deception going on inspired by Satan, right? That, that all of this, right, Satan is the one who's ultimately behind all of it. And you know, in the, in the Gospel of John, there's a place where Jesus is talking about Satan and says uh, he's the father of lies, and when he lies, he's speaking his native language, right? Deception and deceit are the main ways Satan has always worked, right? And so, There's several things going on. It's not merely that Christians might reject their faith out of fear of persecution at the hands of the man of lawlessness. It's deeper than that. There's some people who are going to be led astray and actually want to follow the man of lawlessness, right? They're going to see false signs and false miracles and things like that, and they're going to be led astray by him. So how do we avoid that, right? Because we don't want to be people who reject the faith. We don't want to be people who commit apostasy. Well, I think there's a couple of things we learn from this passage about how to guard our hearts so that that doesn't happen. The first is that we need to cultivate love for the truth. Look again at verse 10, right? It's talking about the people who've, who've gone after the man of lawlessness and followed him. It says, they perish 
because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. So as Christians, we ought to be people who love and delight in the truth. And unfortunately, this is hard because I think increasingly in our culture, people don't love and delight in the truth. Um, I, I study politics for my day job, uh, and one of the things that I've noticed is how desensitized all of us have become to slander, right? Slander is saying false things about other people to their harm, right? That's, that's slander. Uh, how often have you seen a politician describe their opponent, say, here's what my opponent believes, where the opponent would say, yes, that is a fair and accurate description of what I really think. You've probably never seen that happen, right? Every time people describe their political opponents, they always pick and choose uh, the things they can manipulate, uh, frame things, spin things to make their opponent look as bad as possible. Sometimes they just flat out make stuff up, right? And we've just become used to that. And as Christians, I think we easily fall into this. You know, we, we read something about a politician we don't like, oh, yeah, and we just forward it on to everybody with no thought of whether it's actually true or not. Right? As Christians, we should be people who love the truth. But not just any truth. In particular, as Christians, we need to be people who love the truth of the gospel. Because did you notice it says they refused to accept the love of the truth and so be saved. Not just any old truth can save you, right? Two plus two is four, but knowing that and loving two plus two plus four is not gonna get you into heaven. There is only one truth that can save us and that is the truth of the gospel that we are sinners and that Jesus, who was innocent, lived a perfect life, died for us on the cross, and offers us forgiveness for our sins if we will put our trust in him and follow him. And that if we will do that, we have an inheritance in heaven that can never spoil, perish, or fade, and that nothing can take away from us. That is the gospel. And the more we love the gospel and delight in that truth, the less prone we are going to be to falling for the deceptions of someone like the man of lawlessness. Because here's, here's the way to think about it. When we love other things more than we love the gospel, what we have is an idol. And whatever our idols are, that's an opening that Satan can use to try to pull us off course. We need to be people who love the gospel more than we love anything else. But more than that, we also need to people, be people who cultivate delight in righteousness. Right? Did you notice the end of the passage? Right? Verses 11 and 12, it says, For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned. Those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. So part of the reason people are rejecting the gospel and not delighting in the gospel is actually because they delight in things that are evil. They delight in things that are evil. And, and the picture here seems to be, 
I start delighting in things that are evil. I, like, there are things that are wrong, and I get really good at justifying and rationalizing them and explaining why it looks like it's wrong, but it's really not. And the more I do that, and the more I start applauding things that are bad, at a certain point, God gives us over to what we're delighting in. And this is scary, right? It's almost like God says, okay, if that's what you delight in, you can have it. Right? And so I think that's what's going on. It says God sends them a strong delusion so they will believe the lie. Right? Because these are people who already didn't delight in righteousness. Now, here's, here's why this is important. If I am the sort of person who admires pride, instead of seeing pride as a sin, I actually kind of admire pride then when someone like the man of lawlessness appears who is proud and arrogant and he knows how to get things done, I'm going to be drawn to that. Uh, If I am the sort of person who applauds sexual sin, then if someone comes with a way of distorting the faith and saying, hey, you can engage in sexual sin and be a Christian all at the same time, right? I'm going to be drawn to that. If I am someone whose heart is set on money and wanting to have more and more for myself, a strong leader who promises, follow me and you can have more wealth, right? I'm going to be drawn to that. And so the thing that we have to be on guard against is making sure that we don't delight in these things that are evil, but instead we delight in things that are actually good, things that are like Jesus. So as I was, I was thinking about this, the passage that came to my mind uh, is from Galatians chapter 5. It's a, a famous passage, verses 22 and 23, describing the fruit of the Spirit. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. And I was thinking about that in contrast to the man of lawlessness, right? The man of lawlessness sees God's law and does the opposite. But people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit are going to have these character qualities. And if your character is marked by love, by joy, by peace, by patience, by kindness, by goodness, by faithfulness, by gentleness and self-control, you will do what Jesus wants you to do without even having to think about it. Right? Because it will just be built into your character. So what that means is, when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we should be trying to cultivate delight in those character qualities. So in other words, like when we look at our culture, when we look at our churches, when we look at ourselves, where we see love, we should rejoice and delight in it. Where we see joy, we should rejoice and delight in it. Where we see peace, we should rejoice and delight in it. Where we see patience, where we see kindness, where we see goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, wherever we see those things, that should cause us to rejoice and delight. We should be seeking out opportunities to think about things that are like that. But then when we see the opposite, we should grieve. 
right? Rather than be, being attracted to it, we should grieve over it. The more we are repelled by things that are contrary to the Spirit of God, the less appealing someone like the man of lawlessness would be, right? So, so here's why this is important. How do we be on guard so that we're ready? One technique Christians have sometimes tried to use is to have like these really elaborate timelines of exactly how things are going to go and exactly what the Antichrist is going to be like, because that way we're going to know exactly what it's going to be like. And, and I'm just saying, like, as Christians, we don't have a very good track record, right, of being able to predict these things very well. And if you go back historically, I've thought often about the following uh, fact. There were a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament predicting what it would be like when the Messiah came. And there were some people who tried to prepare back in Jesus' day for the Messiah coming by really studying all those passages and having this really detailed view of what it was going to be like when the Messiah came. And by and large, when Jesus actually showed up, those people missed him. Those were the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And they had a few assumptions that were not quite right, a few things they thought they knew about Jesus that they didn't. He didn't quite check all of their boxes, and they're like, no, it couldn't be him. But do you know who did recognize Jesus when he came the first time? The sorts of people who, when John the Baptist started preaching and telling people to repent of their sins, said, yes, that's me, I need to repent. God, your ways are right, my ways are wrong, I am sorry. People who had soft repentant hearts were the people who recognized Jesus when he came the first time. And now, after Jesus came, we can look back at a lot of those prophecies in the Old Testament that were so confusing before, and now that we know they're about Jesus, a whole lot more things make sense. I think it's going to be like that when Jesus comes the second time. Because if I'm honest with you, when I try to look at all the different prophecies all over the Bible and all the things that apply to the second coming of Jesus, I have trouble figuring out how, how all of them all fit together. And there's a lot of things about it that are confusing to me. But I'm reassured because I don't think I have to get it all figured out right now. What I need to do is cultivate a heart that loves the gospel deeply and that delights in the character of Jesus because if I have cultivated those character qualities, when these events start happening, my heart's going to be in the right place and I'm not going to be deceived. That is our call as Christians. To be people who love the gospel, who love Jesus and his character, who desire to have our character be like him more than anything else. Because if that is our greatest desire, we don't have to live in fear anymore. Because there is nothing Satan or the man of lawlessness or anyone can do to take that away from us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, there is so much we don't understand about passages like this. And so much we don't know about exactly how the details of these things will play out. We don't know if it's going to be in our lifetime or a thousand years from now, God. We just don't know. But Jesus, what we do know is this. We know that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And that you are the one in control. 
and that you will protect your people and defeat your enemies and that one day we will reign with you and live with you forever and ever. So God, I pray that you would help us to repent of any idolatries that are in our lives and that we would love your gospel more than we love anything else, that we would have hearts just filled with gratitude that you would forgive and save people like us.